ladies and gentlemen, can I welcome you? Sorry, we're starting a little bit late, but um, it's a Hispanic event, so that's um, 10 minutes or so is absolutely natural, and it's a Friday afternoon, and it's beautiful weather, uh, and it's extraordinary to see so many of you here. But it's totally understandable to uh, want to know what Alfredo Brunenburg and the urban think tank uh, have been up to for uh, a number of years. It's an extraordinary opportunity to hear what, for me, one of the most uh, dynamic and active architectural activists I know in the world is actually up to. And on the whole, you never know what he's up to. And um, so whatever introduction I give will probably have little to do with what he actually speaks about. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure, it's an honor to be able to do this event. It was organized, in fact, it was in, uh, first proposed by the Venezuelan Society, one of the new societies here at the LSC, which is working together with a lot of the South American, Latin American uh, groups um, and constituencies represented in the school, and glad to see so many of you here uh, tonight uh, to attend this of one of many events. Uh, we've joined up with LSE Cities, which is a group that, uh, research center that I run uh, here at the LSE, together with uh, a number of colleagues who are also here, which is a center dedicated to uh, research and teaching and investigation of the links between the physical world and the social world. And at the heart of that is probably one very simple um, thought, one th suggestion, which sometimes in a school of social science uh, is rather difficult to uh, to convince anyone that that is the case, that actually architecture, physical space, design impacts on people's lives. I mean, let's say the default mode of a social scientist, well, we know it's much more important whether you're alive, whether you're healthy, whether you've been fed, uh, whether you've been educated, whether you've made money. You know, those are the issues which really matter to your, let's call it, well-being and your standing in society. And uh, our research has been very much predicated on the notion that where we live, uh, and the spaces we construct to live in are as important as all these other uh, parameters. Now, over the last five years, I think um, I've visited between 20 and 30 different cities with a number of colleagues to really identify and understand these processes and also to identify those projects or those initiatives and also those people who deal with this interface. And still today, I use one example uh, to make my point, I think probably better than any. Uh, and that is a project that um, Alfredo took me to see in uh, 2005, no, it was January 2006, in fact, uh, in Caracas, uh, which is something that he and his partner, uh, Hubert Klumpner, invented uh, right in the middle of one of the most difficult areas and one of the most difficult cities in the world, which is Caracas. And this is a project which you may or may not show, I don't know, um, called the vertical gym. And I don't want to describe it because we have the architect and the inventor who put it all together. But all I can say is that in this part of Caracas where uh, Alfredo took me, roughly something like uh, 10 to 15 teenagers at that point were being murdered every weekend, shot. 15 to 20 teenagers every weekend, mainly uh, young men. Now, in London, when the 17th young person is murdered in a year, it's a dramatic statistic. So just put those two figures in mind. And of course, Alfredo and Hubert, in a completely laid back way for them, took me right to the heart of this area, where I saw things and people with cocaine uh, widened pupils, 
uh, with guns showing off in front of me, shooting over my head. I was absolutely terrified, absolutely terrified. I think you guys were too, but you were you sort of used to it. But there was this sense of um, promise in an area of absolute devastation from the social uh, point of view. The environment is you know, dense, informal settlement where people make do without the most basic provisions, where the society there is actually extraordinarily well organized, but totally within the informal sector. Uh, and after seeing the environments that we were in and the sort of knowing about the social context, I was taken to the building that they had invented, designed, and built, put the money together to make it happen. And it's a gym right in the middle on the fringes of this favela. And I saw young men playing basketball, doing push-ups, uh, hanging out, doing things together with the windows, in fact, of the houses right next, looking right into the space. So instead of shooting drugs or shooting guns, these guys were shooting balls, I mean, shooting basketballs. The, roughly something like 20, 30 percent of the crime rate in this area was reduced. I'm not saying it was because of this building, but buildings have something to do with the sort of social economy of place. And I think this is exactly the work uh, that um, uh, Alfredo uh, Hubert and his group have been uh, so powerfully uh, creative at sort of dealing with this uh, problem, which is a contemporary problem in every city around the world outside the comfort of the global north or Western Europe. It is the natural predicament, probably with the exception of China or uh, Japan, anyway. So how to deal with violence, how to deal with um, exclusion is something that few architects, and few architects who care about their work as a real design aesthetic, uh, practice. It's a very hard thing to do. You tend to get a world which is separated, let's say, between those activists who are there building drains in Africa and doing very noble and important things, and others who you know, create uh, award-winning buildings which are on the front covers of magazines and everything else. And then you have these guys who sort of do both. And I think that's, that's the extraordinary thing. There are many anecdotes. I mean, I could really spend hours here to tell you what it's like going around with Alfredo in an open-sided helicopter with four military people, I don't know where you got them from, with machine guns to make sure you weren't shot at, you know, in overlooking Caracas with Alfredo, with his camera, at least three cameras, I think, uh, filming you, talking, saying what you think, and look at, oh, that's where, tell the helicopter to, no, no, God, you feel sick, you know. I mean, it's the most extraordinary sort of sense of getting there, and a few hours later, meeting a man in military fatigues in the Italian bar of the Hilton in Caracas, who was the mayor. And uh, Alfredo, of course, knew him. And um, we began to talk and talk about a number of things. Uh, this all happened because when I was preparing the uh, Venice Biennale uh, four years ago, uh, on more or less some of these themes, five years ago, I picked up a book. And this book had done everything that I wanted, I thought I was going to do, it was going to be very original. It was this book on basically slums and all the issues I've been talking about. So Alfredo and Hubert had sort of got there before. Since then, it's been an extraordinary journey to see them work at Columbia University, the city of Sao Paulo, and many others. And most recently, they've become together professors at probably the most important classic school of architecture any in the world, anywhere in the world, called the ETH in Zurich. Uh, it's you know, where all the best, I think, designers are, and it's fantastic that 
um, Europeans and international students at undergrad and graduate level now being exposed to the sort of energy, the sort of ideas, and the thoughts that Alfredo will share with us today. So please welcome him to our school. Wow, that's an important introduction. I have to tell you that now it's my little turn to, to say something. Um, two people have been instrumental in our career. One is Christine Fryers, with whom we edited the book, Informal City, Caracas Case, and the other is Ricky Burdett. And those two very important individuals um, were important because no one was interested in our topic. We went around the world. In fact, we were so brash that we were in people's faces. More than once, I was reminded of that, to stay cool. But that really, the issue is, it's very hard to find people who are willing to do social investment. And that's why I'm here today. I'm here to tell you a little bit about that journey. Um, what I do is what I do is what I do. So it's hard to really describe and make full circle uh, the ideas contained in it. But I will begin. Uh, that would be nice. Is that okay? Very good, very good. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so it begins, I guess, the other way around. So we begin today, now, as professors at ETH. Um, why? Because the money's in Europe, and I'll explain that. And the money and the end, I think some of the best social thinkers are in Europe. Can you move the image to the right? Touching off the lettering on the left. Oh, well, I, yeah. It's a formatting issue. Yeah, it's okay. So, Zurich is not only about cows. Hmm. But it's important that you see cows and behind Science City. Because I think Switzerland has a great contribution that they are thinking about this kind of urban and rural situation. And that's important because how can we create, two things are happening actually uh, in the world. Um, one is you have cities that are shrinking, like Detroit, like a lot of uh, Eastern uh, Bloc cities, uh, East Germany, are shrinking. And as they shrink in Detroit, the houses are being even knocked down. You've seen probably bulldozers and, and shots of Detroit from Camilo Vergara showing you how all these dilapidated homes and the city's greening. So you're getting a car city, Detroit, the industrial powerhouse, slowly turning into a kind of urban agriculture. And so you're getting a strange mix between rural and urban. But at the same time, you have the opposite also happening, which is you have cities expanding all over, the, uh, all over the territory and leaving pockets of rural farmland in between. And you see that in China. You see rice paddies right next to huge developments. So you're getting this very strange mix between urban and rural. So keep that in mind, and that's why Switzerland can become interesting. But the underlying philosophy that I'm going to try and communicate, not easy today, is the idea of social design. And the only way I can really communicate to you what it is, is by showing the work. So those of you who are not architects and might be a little bit uh, skeptical that architects have a contribution to any kind of policy making, um, I'll try and tell you that I believe that that 
is wrong and maybe architects and policymakers and designers have to work more together. So it all begins here. Our story, really in 2001, um, when we were flying all the way over to Switzerland to the fourth Pontresina conference where Kupimimblau, Hani Rashid, Winnie Mas, we didn't know any of them. We were flying over as kind of the token Latin Americans to speak in the conference, and it happened to be uh, September 9-11. Uh, and as we were flying over, um, the tragedy happened. What became so important to us was that fateful day, was we arrived in the conference and they wanted to cancel the conference completely because architecture had been attacked, right? And they thought it was not appropriate to talk about architecture. We said the opposite. We stood up there, unknowns, in the middle of the dinner, and we said, no, the show must go on. Now is when we have to talk about it. Now is when we have to talk about the link between these extremes and across this wall. So some of you might know Teddy Cruz, a very close friend. There's been a network of friends developing. So I do believe there's a new generation, a kind of actor network theory, uh, in the sense that there's many individuals that are thinking alike. But that political equator is a fictitious one, right? Not the real equator, but it draws across to making a division between north and south. But the interesting thing on this map is all the pixelated dots are the areas in which growth will be most uh, apparent from now to 2030. And most of it will be in the south, and most of it will be in slum areas. Now, this is Mumbai. So the real dilemma of this picture is, what's better? So these are, these are blocks for slum rehabilitation. And I tell you, I'm not so sure if it's better, right? They become ghettos, vertical ghettos. But we'll talk more about that. In the times of India, and you can see it down here, the figures, in, a, in 10 years, one million slum dwellers have added to Mumbai's uh, physical uh, uh, reality. So at the same time that they sell you the idea that slums are, or people are moving out of poverty, right? You hear about China, 300 million moving out of poverty. I tell you, examine, you who know better about numbers, examine the way the UN has put together those numbers. Why? Because, as I understand it, it was a change in classification. It was a change in classification between houses that had no latrine and houses that have that latrine. But that doesn't mean that they're not like slums and have huge social problems. So that idea that 300 million are moving out is a relative number that should be checked. But here we are in Europe. These are fantastic maps of MIT, MIT uh, showing that we are living in one urbanized planet. And this is the idea. There's consequences. There's social responsibilities across the globe, as you already know it. We've always been much too focused on cities as form, as like we're always inward looking. We're always looking at the shell or the footprint of a city. But obviously, there's an interrelationship between the outside and the inside. So we no longer can just look at cities and its footprint, but we have to look at everything outside, because everything outside is also pertinent to the inside. So it's this idea of an urban planet that I'd like to pass forward. This is a very famous photograph, actually made famous by Urban Edge and the Cities Program. But the beauty here is this division wall. 
this edge condition. Richard Senna had the pleasure of hearing him talk um, in New York just a few weeks ago, and he was very interested in the idea of the border, the edge condition, and how we could treat it, how we could make it more porous. What, what, what possibilities can we do to make this dialogue you know, more fluid, break down the way it is, this sharp edge breakdown? So I think the future is about social distribution, but not as an ideology. Don't get me wrong. That's, uh, we are not ideologically oriented. That's like a dinosaur thing. We're actually trying to navigate and create a kind of another modernity, or if you want, another way of producing architecture that really does break down these barriers. But Eric Hobsbawm, great guy, he's still alive in England, um, he really put his finger on it. He said the 21st century will be about this social distribution. So in these perspectives, these are the marches in Caracas. Um, for and against the political parties at the moment. We voided out the architecture because as Ricky said in the introduction, it's about people. People are the first infrastructure and the first social infrastructure. So at purposely in this little artwork, we've annulled the architecture to not make you think about it. But it's, so here are some of our friends. These are some of the individuals that Ricky met that day up on the hill of Cota 905. These are our clients. And, we, and actually, some of these Ricky met. Um, but it's also about beauty. There's an inherent beauty. So I don't want to leave that apart. And these is some of the first events that we did. So what we did as an architect group, a collective, let's say, is we started an organization called Caracas Think Tank, which was an NGO and still functioning, where we did walks in the city, basketball tournaments, we handed out some, some prizes, etc. And that's how we got to know him. Well, this guy right here in the middle is who Ricky was talking about, one of them. He's no longer with us today. So, it makes me sad, but it also, I believe, things are changing. So let's leapfrog. What kind of technologies can we bring? What kind of technologies can we invent that are not sophisticated, but building simply, you know, simple technologies to leapfrog? If we had put in landlines to all of those slum uh, areas, which I will show you in a second, we would have lost all of our money. So the idea here is how can we invest really prudently because there's a scarcity of resources. How can we do this in order to leapfrog them out of their poverty? So before, this is our friend Kai Rothenberg and Lothar Baumgarten. Lothar is actually a very famous uh, artist. They were going back to the jungle, Levi Strauss style. They were looking for the Axis Mundi. They were trying to understand a sense of community, right? This is in the 1960s. But I tell you, the first Indian we saw was in the city. All those Indians migrated to the city. In fact, they're no longer there. They're fleeing nature because there's a bloody war out there. Do you know that Colombia, half of Colombia, was, is given up to the guerrilla and the narco? Of course it's getting better, but half of the territory of the country is lost. They fleed. Where did they flee to? They fleed to Venezuela because Venezuela had oil money. So we had a huge influx of population and no housing. So they built the city for themselves. They came to work, right? It's logical. And these are the gun holes, gunshots on the walls that occur at night. And the kids have 
incredibly outline them, making a very conscious gesture to make you really think about what's going on there. But during the day, it's a basketball field. That's where we held our tournament. And this is in Sao Paulo. So I tell you, even Sao Paulo, the most sophisticated city, I would say, of Latin America, um, is a city that very strange things are going on. This is a, a big slum, San Francisco, in which a fire was lit mysteriously. But we know that this slum is smack, small slum, smack in the middle of an area where developers want to get their hands on this piece of property. It's a wood slum, so they said it was precarious, and it went up in flames. So we did this book, Informal City, that Ricky uh, addressed uh, on, in order to understand the reality of where we were coming from. Because I tell you, architecture is changing. And uh, the way we build cities is changing. Somehow, uh, not because we, were, we had a vision, but we knew that more places would be like Caracas than like London or New York or Manhattan. And in that sense, we thought this book could be useful for some areas, and especially in the Sur Global. But this is another very important precedent for us. This is the Previ uh, project in Lima, Peru. And it was led by Peter Land. He's the, the man there at the end at the blackboard with the glasses. Now, Peter Land organized a group of architects, and it's the only time that I know of where international architects like Aldo Van Eyck, Itzosaki, James Sterling, by the way, there's an exhibit of James Sterling on now today um, in London, um, all went down to Lima, Peru to do social housing in a, some kind of slum rehabilitation. But the brilliance of this group was that they understood the idea of the growing house, which I will explain, which is they just laid the foundations for the urbanization, quite a large one, and they realized it. But they knew that over time, that urbanization would grow and new floors would be added. And there's a fantastic article in Domus of last month written by Justin McCurt, who's actually in the audience today. And I really thank him for bringing that to the public light. Because not too many people know about this Previ experience. So I ask to you today, why aren't very well-known architects really putting themselves also on the line and donating at least a fraction of their time to thinking about these large, poor, urban areas, like this on the screen. You can ask them. So here's Ricky. He's trying to figure out what that city is, right? And that's a good question, because after Previ, the whole program had been forgotten. And this is what he's looking at. This is La Vega. It goes on endlessly. It's like a lava flow. How do you put infrastructure in there? That's a task for a lifetime. It's too big. The size of the problem has, is unmanageable. And that's what leads me to a couple of conclusions. Informal settlements are not the problem, but the solution. There's no housing policy that can be implemented to recuperate 2 million missing housing units. We can't even build 60,000 units a year as a housing policy. I don't know how many City of London or Council of London does in a year. Maybe someone will tell me later. 38,000 hmm? 38,000, there best. you go. Favelas can no longer be defined as illegal. They are de facto legal. They've been around for 50 years. Those people have tenureship of their land and of their unit. 
they can no longer be defined as lack of urban services because over time they've built the urban services. And this is what you see. You see a retrofitted city. This is on the ground now, not from the air, because you need to look at it from the air, understand the morphology. You need to go on the ground, and then you need to go to the small scale and figure out how it's put together. These are just some images so you see the architecture of the growing house, because it's growing because it incrementally grows over time as they have enough funds. And I'll show you some mapping of that. Here you see the same house, a few years different. So when we arrived at the mayor's in Caracas offices, what we saw on the back of their chairs was this fantastic map of Petare, and in the middle it said Zona Verde, green zone, in these white spots. And we said, oh my god, what are those things? And, and of course we knew, it's a joke, right? We said, why didn't you put the housing in there? There's 800,000 people living there. Now the reason that housing is not there is because they would have had to be uh, delivered services. They would have had to have a legal responsibility towards those inhabitants. But they're, because they're on municipal land or you know, squatted land, he didn't t acknowledge that. Well, this is Petare. It's not a, a, a mountain full of houses. It's one house the size of a mountain. Why? Because they do work in incredibly close-knit actor network ways. Now, if this was one house or a building, let's say an apartment building, the size of a mountain, what would you do to give them an elevator? Well, that's the question we ask ourselves. How can we get people up this building? And we'll come to that later. But this is another interesting aspect. This is 23rd of January, and this touches on this idea of another modernity. And I'm just going to read a quote from Paul Valéry, where he says, in 1935, we can no longer deduce from what we know. The reference tries to make a link today to this time where the outlook for a culture was bleak. And this is Caracas. The outlook for any kind of positive culture coming out of Caracas was very bleak for architects. And Ricky actually took the chance in the Biennale of 2006 uh, to include Caracas as one of the cities. Not as one of the positive maybe cities, necessarily, but there were some aspects that we later brought out. But, some of, but because it was a city that was just representative of a state of bleakness, right? Of overlapping generations of modernity gone array. Well, this project, 20 Testenero, was a fantastic housing project of 48 mega blocks done in 1952, and it was just finished in 58. In 58, the dictatorship fell. As the buildings were about to be handed over when the dictatorship fell, there was a popular uprising, and they squatted 23 de Enero. They broke into the apartments. Even to this day, there's maybe no legal tenureship. But this is the hottest place in Caracas. It's where the president votes today. It is an incredible tight-knit community. It is not like Newark, not like Chicago, not like Mumbai. It is actually alive and well. And the interesting thing is, because this secondary layer of urbanism was set in, it just, and it glued together that modernist uh, tabula rasa, the Corbusian car city. There was all green spaces in the tower in the park, right? And it came to provide all the services that were missing from that modernity.
This is a, a story for a friend of mine in the audience today. When Corbu thought about the Domino House, this is his famous image of the Domino House. It was for 1917, post-World War I housing, and it was for Belgium. Well, the idea here was not to just show the beautiful concrete structure, reinforced concrete structure, but the idea to show it without walls was because he believed that it could become a solution for social housing. He thought that this could be filled with all the rubble of post-World War blocks that were on the street, the cheapest available construction material. So I tell you that the modernists began as social thinkers. And we build one of these domino houses every day in the city of Caracas. This is the status quo, modernity at its, or another modernity, if you want. At Columbia University, we were taught to build this way, to cut hills, build roads, create nice housing blocks, keep some distance between the blocks, maybe too much distance, and make it for the car city. You give one to MVRDV, another one to, to Cool House, another one to Sana, and you have a wonderful publishable work of architecture. Well, do you guys realize that in the magazines, about not even 0.05% of what is shown in the magazines has any, oh, sorry, it, magazines only show 0.05% of what's built in the world, right? Not even, probably. And, um, so I tell you, there's another reality, and this is the reality. When we saw this, we said, wow, this is really city building. This is what we need to learn from. I was not capacitated, I was not taught to think about this, but this is an intricate layer. There's stairs, systems, roads, little alleyways, and they build very lightly. The houses are poised very lightly on the topography, where much less embedded energy. You know the whole failure of, uh, of Abu Dhabi with Mazdar, no? I mean, I won't even go into that, but I really think Mazdar cannot recuperate the embodied energy of the construction site over you know, the next 50 years. And they call it sustainable. Well, in the 99 mudslides of, of uh, Venezuela and Caracas, we saw this happening. People invading buildings, building out their apartments themselves in a, a desperate situation. Well, then we started to think about, so what strategies could we bring to this mountain to bring it, to bring this invisible capital alive? Well, the growing house idea was very important. So I'll take you a little bit through what that growing house is. First, they cut the land, they prepare it, sand, sand, uh, they fill their concrete bags with sand, they make a shack, right, for one or two uh, individuals. Then over time, they build columns around it, they pour a concrete floor, then they build the roof, then when they have a little bit more money, they go up, build another floor, they rent it out, and they do some agriculture on the roof. They do orchid, or they emit medicinal herbs, or chickens. And so you get a very interesting combination of a kind of gradual uh, building, but also a kind of alternate modernity. So what we're trying to do now didactically at ETH with our courses, these are some of them, is to look at different cities around the world. So we've moved now from Caracas as our main focus to a little bit broader perspective. 
And what we're trying to do is to create all the cliches that you can imagine of urbanization and a building cities, right? And, and, uh, and the tabula rasa, the train urbanism, temporary urbanism, and try and map them out in an array of cities that we've been traveling to and create a matrix of those things and see when the car was introduced, when a highway was introduced, when informality, the first evidences of informality, and starting to compare cities. So you have here the Garrido boxing rink and thinking about can we do a boxing a school underneath the Hartbrücke uh, highway, right? So there you have it. And not only that simple transfer, but really trying to understand a transferability of programs. But we're also looking at some contested areas. Mumbai, for instance, the whole waterfront is contested. This is the Kohli village, a 50-year-old village in this side. But a Kohli is the fisherman village that is the very reason Mumbai exists. It was all a fishing village. And the Kohlis are now being pushed out with an incredible force because developers want the land grab right in front of the shore of South Bombay. So, and this fishing village brings the fresh fish, they're still fishing every day. But then we're also looking at Sao Paulo, and what are we looking at? We're looking at the waterworks. So we're also getting involved with geography, you know, cultural history. Sao Paulo is Sao Paulo of a 19 million city because of the waterworks. The English discovered that if they pumped the water backwards, out of the bowl of the city of Sao Paulo, over down to the port of Santos, they would have hydroelectric power. Well, that's why Sao Paulo grew as an industrial hub. So water's always been the topic in Sao Paulo. And in each one of these riverbeds, in fact, here, you can see these yellow dots, there's an association between the 1,200 favelas that are located. They're located exactly in those interstitial spaces around the, the flooding of the river. And this is what happens when the rainstorms come. So there's definitely something to look at, and we need new technologies. But I'm also thinking about China, and this is uh, Chengdu, actually. Chengdu's growing. There's an avenue like a Stalin Alley, you know, ending in the Mao statue, the biggest Mao statue. And Chengdu is building a 20-kilometer avenue, and there is a construction site on every corner, a completely disconnected construction site. It's a, just a building, an individual building project. I tell you, you know, it's not only Venturi who just said it recently, but it really strikes you. It's like if Las Vegas had become the construction model for China. It's really scary. Well, these mega things in neon lights, etc., are either shopping malls or kind of, you know, high-rise apartment buildings, luxury apartments. So they want to knock out this fantastic, vibrant, low-scale, medium-scale housing uh, community here to build, I don't know what, some other kind of crazy thing. But this is the community they want to knock out. This is our little discovery. This is like a dark city, a Kowloon city. This is an amazing, vibrant place. And this has days, days left. And here it's already begun to be knocked down. So, and why? Because China's going too fast. That's why South America maybe is interesting, because it doesn't go so fast. But here you have, these are the runners which are taking plans every five minutes out of the planning authority of Chengdu to get approved, stamped, and to build. And I'm telling you, architects are being uh, nixed 
for jobs in China. There's not competitive bidding, competitive open architecture. No, there's a couple of star architects making some, some you know, nice, nice iconic buildings. And then they created these corporations for construction that are working very close with the university that have directors and young students from China work there when they go back or they get uh, grants to come here to study and then they go back but it's kind of a polybureau of design factory so there is no competitive bidding they're just churning it out at speed so what we're trying to do is create some books that are kind of a toolbox and this is what I'll try and get into the idea is to create a kind of census to understand these, this as an urban uh, fabric that's, that's full of social life. We're interested in this medium-scale, high-density fabric, but we know it's got problems, right? So we're trying to map it out, and we're trying to figure out how to bring water, sewage in, in more effective ways. But trying to how to use it with solar energy. How much can we collect? What's the heat maps of the area, etc.? What's the topography? So here are some different techniques we're investigating, and we make these efficiency charts. So depending on how efficient it is, it's the more full the circle. So it's not very efficient here, but very efficient over here in economy or, or in uh, reliability, etc. So our team is multifaceted. We bring in sociologists like Robert Neuwirth, you might know, he's lived in three slums and he wrote a book about it, fantastic book. And we have all kinds of different uh, disciplines that we try and bring together to analyze these areas. This is a, a heat map, which is just a plug-in for, for the Google Maps that is actually uh, becoming very successful for us because immediately we know where the tops and the bottoms of the hills are. and um, we can really identify quickly where the problems are. This is some of the students. And the tactics are something like this. Diagnose topography, plug in infra infrastructure, <coughs> consolidate the public, prefabricate, distribute freely, open source is key, go vertical, etc., etc. And you will see that later in some of our works. Here you see examples from that book just to give you an idea that we are also teaching. We cannot really separate practice from teaching, from research. I wouldn't know where to draw the line. It's, that's why I say I do what I do. I do every day. I'm in all of those. Okay. More examples from the book. This is the network research. But now I'm going to bring you to Europe. Why? This was not really planned, but I just had two days of walking around London. And I felt that it was important today then to reflect upon it. So those islands of poverty, or the islands of, or, or these areas of the south, the sur global, are also present in the north. You also have them in Europe. And they're being quickly eradicated uh, by developer schemes. But this is what you all know, Robin Hood Gardens. I know I'm hammering on an old uh, story, right? But it was very important for me. Immigrant housing, you know it. It's going to be demolished. It's got about six months to live. It's a uh, classic project by the Smithsons, you know, award-winning architects. It still is full of a, a wonderful social life. They say that it's really not 
uh, uh, good anymore. The density's too low. It's right there next to Canary Wharf. Uh, there's huge pressure from council to uh, sell it off to developers to produce uh, lots of more units. Um, I tell you, it's a real shame that it's happening. It even has a place for a vertical gym. But some of the interesting things we found was people on the ground floor that are disabled or elderly have their little uh, ag urban agriculture. I mean, there's really some interesting things. This was the fantastic idea concept. Well, maybe not perfectly realized, but it was the street in the air that the Smithsons got from North Africa. And maybe you don't know it, but the Smithsons are the single most important group of architects, I believe, in the story of where modernism went wrong. And they were the ones who broke with Siam. There in 1958 in Otulu, they were the ones who brought the Bidonvilles of North Africa to the Siam Congress International de Architecture Moderne. Gideon and Corbu were running the show at that time, and Corbu said, maybe I'm too old for this. And the younger generation said, we've got to look at another way of making cities much actually denser, and they were interested in this carpet housing of North Africa. But what they were really interested in is in the social life. So these streets in the air with glass windows, with doors, with fronts, with extra added uh, uh, circulation, was to uh, make this a sociable space in the air. Every apartment has its entry there. So I'll just take you through. People say that this housing is bad. It's duplex housing, very big rooms. I really don't understand. We would never do that in South America. To knock down this, the embedded energy here, a classic work of art, a seminal work of guys that you only have two projects of in London. You have the Economist building, and you have this. And it's slated for demolition and development. Um, and I'm really, really surprised. But this takes me to think about a project that we're working on. So we also went to Morocco. We started to look into the immigrants into Holland, into the Netherlands, and to see the surplus value, the, uh, the different multicultural resource, you know, the, the new labor that came in because the Moroccan population came in to rebuild Rotterdam, to Utrecht and Rotterdam post World War II. They are the ones who built the city. They were the cheap labor. And now, also, they're being evicted. Um, these are just some of our research. You have actually a mayor now, Moroccan mayor, um, and he still can't do anything. But I'll take you here into Hograven, which are old blocks also held by, by council housing, let's say, which is kind of public private shit, social housing that it was created in the Netherlands to for migrants. But the property values went up. Now this housing where the migrants were inside was very expensive to hold with that low denture. So they're selling them off. And the reason they give is because they've lost, they've lost their use. And the energy coefficients of the buildings is, too, uh, is bad. So why do I show it? I show it because we, we came up with a little scheme of putting additional housing and stair towers, retrofitting it for fire codes, insulation, making new gardens, working on the whole idea of how we could bring these units back to life. And actually, by this little plug-in system of new elevator and walkways and additional rooms, we give them a little winter garden room, it plugs in to the blocks and gives it insulation, stair towers, and actually gives it a whole new life 
that is very much inspired by the Smithsons. So I tell you, it was a real surprise to hear that those projects are gone. This is the plan of how it works, the blocks, the new stair towers, the new streets in the air, the additional rooms, and that leads me to our Caracas work. This was, believe it or not, just kind of the introduction. And we'll stop whenever you get tired. But la revolución del diseño. I tell you, design has a power. And this is a project in Caracas. It's a very strange project. It is a tower in Caracas 17 years ago. It was the highest tower in Caracas when the bank went broke, just when Chavez came into power. And the question here is, function sometimes follows form. This bank tower has been squatted by 3,000 families. The whole tower is being transformed as we speak today. And I have a movie to show you how it's being done by do-it-yourself urbanism. It is Jonah Friedman's dream. Now I bring you this very strange example, which actually the New York Times wrote about not too, not too uh, uh, far ago, to show you what can be done with willpower. Now how does this work? It's an organization of the Anglican Church or Evangelist Church. And they are putting together a team of workers, builders, uh, family. Why? Because there is no housing policy in the Venezuela of today. And they're working. I'm not saying this is an example. But look at this. It's people that need housing that are taking it on themselves. Why do I bring it? Because what I can transmit to you today is spirit. It's a spirit of changing the way we build cities. It's the spirit of creating maybe another medium, intermediate way between a for-profit and a non-profit. Maybe we can find a mix. And it's not about giving land titles, individual Hernando de Soto, you know, uh, land titles. Because what good is a land title in a place at the top of the hill that has no infrastructure. What bank is going to loan you and for who and for what, right? So um, this has stores, shops, haircutting salons, basketball fields inside. And why do I bring it? Look, this is the way they bring up the, the goods and the material. With motorcycles because that had a parking garage that went up nine floors. So what I'm saying is this idea between formal and informal is bad. Informal, when we talked about it, was not about out of formality. No. Informal was a very ambiguous term that actually meant a kind of rhizomatic, different structure of growing a city. Because inform, inform, right? What does that mean? It's not out of form, it's inform. It's actually about process. It's about understanding how people are organizing themselves. And that's what I'm interested in. Production factories inside. So these images are exotic, correct? But I tell you, there is some value in it. And the idea is, can we build a democratic city in a different way? This might sound a little strange to the island of wealth that you're, we're all in at the moment. OK, we're back to the projects. This is Caracas. This is the hills around the valley on both sides, a huge mountain on one side. It, Caracas is a perfect modern terrain to build the modern city. In fact, Corbu on his trip said Latin America will be the place where modern architecture can flourish. And why? Because the topography is so fantastic. You can build under, over, around, and it creates an incredible spatiality. But that didn't happen. 
But what we started to observe were things like this center, right here in the middle. We said if we can create some urban generators and we can link those urban generators together, maybe we have a chance. But we began in a very humble way. We began working as street vendor architects. So we met the uh, Don Bosco Catholic priests in Petare. And they said to us, look, there's a terrible problem of homeless children and orphan children. And we don't know where to put them. Our house is full of these children. We said, build a center under the bridge. Just do it. Use the bridge as the roof. So we did. We made some drawings on a, on a, a week in, in our office. And we handed it over to the Don Bosco Church. We came back six months later. And they had made Casa Hogar Mamá Margarita. And it's right under the bridge. It has the first example of our soccer pitch um, that we built over the house. So inside the house, however, we started to work on program. This is the entrance to the kitchen and the dormitories. And we developed the idea of a woodworking shop. This is Jose Antonio Nunez from our office. And we developed a very simple chair that, that they could build. We did some urban agriculture. And we, this is how we left it a few years ago. And now it is completely taken over by the Bolivarian government of Venezuela. Uh, and they have kicked the Don Bosco order out, and it's being transformed. So what we realized is architecture is very vulnerable in the countries where we're working. And when we realized that we couldn't have a permanence, actually, we intuitively knew it, we had to approach architecture in a different way. So we began to make these micro-projects. And what we're maybe good at is making these prototypes. This is a dry toilet, which is a composting toilet that you can have urban agriculture. Why? Because this is the top of the hill of La Vega, where they could bring water up with a pipe because there was enough pressure, but there was no sewage. So it was just seeping into the hills. So we said, let's bring a dry toilet, which was a rural instrument to Caracas. And with Liat Esakov, we built the first one. Here you see it, some stills from our movie. And these are the two girls that built their own house here with Bajareque, mud brick house, and take care of that bathroom and actually have a wonderful garden of tomatoes. And there. And then we moved on to saying, OK, what else can we do? We have this stair system. People are going 39 floors on average up the hill to the house. 39 floors, two hours to get to their house. But it rains like crazy six months out of the year. So we said, well, maybe we can make a kind of stair system that is very generic, straight tubes, bent, bent sheet metal, and with a swivel plate so that you could make stairs going in any direction. We handed that over, and we built the first prototype, and we don't know how many more have been built. This is one that's been transformed completely. <coughs> so, oh, so sorry. Let me just play that. This is just to prove a point, which is we all know that architecture is not a static thing. It's not the building itself. The building it functions is not important. What's important is what people do in it. It's about people moving through space. It's about people in space and perceiving other people and meeting other people. That's why stairs are incredibly important. It's where the social system happens in the barrios. 
That brings us to the growing house concept. We thought that maybe we could liberate some space by building these kind of raw concrete structures as an alternate housing project. And they're already very good builders. And they could move up slowly and build out their own units. But we didn't get the chance to realize it until we met the Anglican Church. And in the Anglican Church, they had this old 1950s church. They wanted to make some emergency housing for the flood uh, disaster of 99. And we said, OK, let's build this building strong enough and let's build it over the parish house, which was existing there, and I'll show you a picture, so that it can move up, grow up seven stories at least with emergency housing when you have more money. And then we put a kindergarten underneath the building. So this is kind of a more sophisticated strategy. These are our clients, fantastic clients. Those of you who think you need corporate clients, forget it. You know, these are incredible. We built some windows. We brought light into the old church, the 1950 church. And this is the way we found it. The church, we added on the tower. We built over, under, opened the holes. And then this was the idea of the growing house tower. Here you'll see some examples of it. The kindergarten underneath, light coming in, the director. And this is just to, and then, of course, we added some architecture to give it some dynamism, to give it some kind of interesting movement, exactly. But we built the floor slabs. It's concrete on the outside like a bridge structure. And we bridge it with steel so that we can perforate through the steel and apartments can be united in very different ways. Here's the structure on the outside. These were some units that we came up with. And here you see the old parish house underneath. And the building is going up as they have more money and building itself up. So this is the area that we thought of, and we hoped that one day we could actually build a replacement housing to open up some space in the hill. This brings us to Metro Cable. Probably it's a build-up. So I'm telling you things don't just happen immediately. We started to build our practice one step at a time. And with this fantastic social revolution that went on, or the doors were open for all kinds of crazy ideas, right? That's the only positive side, I believe, of what's going on in Caracas. Anything goes. And there's some, some possibilities to realize it. So we created this idea to create hubs up on the hill. But where does that come from? This is Bakama, also part of Team 10, the Smithsons Team 10. And he made this fantastic drawing where he analyzed public and private. You have these apartment buildings with elevators in the 20th century. And then you had the public with the tram cars, etc. And there was a little bit of connection between public and private. But he envisioned a city like Archigrade, or you guys might know, English group, right? Where public and private would be all mixed, right? In a very interesting way in a 21st century city. Well, I don't really believe in doing that tabula rasa. Cities in the air doesn't go. But when you have already a topography with which you can move and build out of and use as architecture, that's a different story. So the only way to bring food and provisions onto this hill was one road connection, and they would bring the food down. So the people who lived highest were the most disadvantaged. And the government wanted to create road network that would displace, a, you know, 20% of the hillside to create the road structure, and very expensive to build a road. And so we showed them what houses had been upgraded over time. We went door by door, 
meeting people, writing down their names, and doing the kind of activism that I believe is necessary. Doña Alicia became our client. We had community meetings. We, we put down series of things that, that the community was you know, claiming that they needed. And because power supposedly is being passed on to the people, we said, ask for your power, right? The old John Lennon song, power to the people. So we began to envision with the community what these streets could be. And we came up with this product, the first thing. To get provisions up the hill, we created the Metro Chivo to sell to the Metro company. Using the gun holes that you saw on the, on the photo before, we said, please don't steal our card, right? It was kind of a memory of that moment. And it has three wheels, so it's a stair climber to move uh, mostly beer up the hill. <laughs> so we built the first prototype, and apparently now it's going forward. The Metro will do more. With that, we came up with this first sketch. It, we are very good at creating visualization, right? That's what architects know how to do. Architects must become the glue between top-down and bottom-up activities. Architects are very, very well trained. We don't know too much about anything in specific, but we know a lot about a general things. So we could visualize quickly the idea of creating these hubs on the hill of cable cars as an urban transport with cultural buildings uh, below. So they actually become like La Plaza, the square, the main square where the activity on the hill would happen. And then we said, so how do we do it? So we've created a kind of loop that connects to the main metro stop in Parque Central, flies over the highway, which is dividing like on the other side of the rail tracks, that old story. And you go up to three stations on the hill and back down to another metro line stop, which is under construction. And with that idea of the loop, right, we could connect the formal and the informal. This is the hill. And these are the stations <coughs> up on the hill. This is a community of 40,000 people, San Agustin del Sur. Three stations up on the hill, two down at the city. And the idea was to plop the stations right on top of the metro. The idea is to link, in fact, all the systems here. If not, it would be like a merry-go-round, like a loop, right? And not only to link it, but to plug in programs like Archigram to make the plug-in city. So we came up with the prototype station, and then we said, let's plug a gymnasium right on the side of it. So you have to walk down the hill anyway with a kind of ramp system for an emergency exit. Why don't we make that ramp the gym ramp? And on the side of the building, we actually donated, and we now actually want to donate that vertical gym to London. Because today we spent the afternoon, sorry I was late, but I'm late because I was over at the Olympic site and we went to the neighboring town of uh, Hatwick. Huh? Stratford. Stratford. No, no, we went further over to Hatwick. Hatwick. Hackney Wick. Sorry about that. Thank you for that help. Hackney Wick. Because Hackney Wick is in a transformation a slow transformation. And I think it's, it would be fantastic if we follow what Lady uh, Gray Thompson, if you all know uh, in the House of Lords, you have an incredible uh, uh, peer there, you say peer, or, um, and she is a paraplegic 
uh, Olympic star of 30 medals. And she on May 6th said, in a meeting in the House of Lords said, we hope that the London Olympics leaves a legacy in the poorest neighborhoods about sports and inner city uh, infrastructure. Um, I'm not sure it can happen that quickly, but I believe that if our first gesture is to donate the gym, free of charge, all plans to the city of London. So the whole hill now, after the cable cars has been implemented, is in a transformation you wouldn't believe. Investment is going crazy. Houses are opening up bars, shops. So what looked like an ideological socialist project top-down has actually stimulated a kind of popular capitalism. So I really believe that there's ways in which to work that are, that are a little bit different than we normally think. And this is the cable car in the city. So what was the worst area of the city of Caracas is now actually the, one of the most exciting areas. And this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about turning around areas. I'm talking about turning around Robin Hood Gardens. I'm talking about turning around areas which you think are actually not very good, but without eviction, without slum eradication, but actually creating new infrastructures that plug in. And I'm sure that at Robin Hood Gardens, there is enough terrain there to put added density that would vitalize the area and respect and keep the Smithson's block alive. But it might be, I fear, a little too late. But now I'm going to tell you to that vulnerable story. I'm going to take you to what we tried to do. This is the avenue down below where the metro runs. We identified for the city metro company that they had lots that they had left open as the construction of the metro went on. So we said, don't only invest in the hill. You've got to put replacement housing, old people's homes, a series of things that the dwellers on the hill need down at the formal city, schools that were missing. So we tried to work with Mission Villanueva on this avenue down here. And we on this avenue at the very bottom of the hill. Because we needed to prove a point. It's not about just working in the, the poor districts. It's about changing the composition of the city. And this is the avenue, and these are some of the model buildings that we worked on. But what did we do? We thought we would have some time to work it out, right? So there's subway stations. Nuevo Circo, Teatros, Parque Central. So we started to look at a color scheme for the avenue. We started to say, can we make a visible change in the city in one avenue? Well, unfortunately, we handed over the plans, and there were only um, conceptual design drawings of possible buildings. Well, we were then asked not to continue. It was taken over by centralized government, and they began to paint the whole avenue yellow. Um, here are some facades of it. It's actually very funny, but what we handed over was these kinds of drawings where we identified possible sites for reuse, we identified signal posts, you know, uh, how you could navigate through it. These are the site maps. These are some of the buildings that we designed and handed over as conceptual designs. The growing house, we actually moved it from up on the hill, which is the idea of the growing house evolved. And the idea was using the hill, you could create a public street all the way through the building with social spaces inside and clusters of units together to create this more dynamic, fluid city where public and private mix. These are some of the growing house schemes. And we handed it over, hopefully, 
um, to be built here. We made these renders down at the formal city. This is uh, a, a doctor's ambulatorio, they call it, which is a doctor's office. We handed over these little sliver of plants. And what they built was this. And so it actually became an artwork. It became a kind of conceptual thing where we realized that we are not in control. We're not in control of our, of our profession. And we have to come to terms with that. So what we can do, however, is we did activate, this is the old people's home, for people to come down and have a spa, a shower, play dominoes, etc. Well, it's under construction. Something's coming up. Um, this was a school for some of the children up on the hill that we handed over. And we just went there last week, and there it is. It's coming up. We don't know how it'll be finished. We're not involved. But the reason I tell you that story is really to talk about this sense of another modernity, which requires an acute sensation analysis of the present time. We are in a crisis time. The ever-shifting culture in Latin America mandates that the dilemma of being modern is precisely that of living in the vanishing present. We don't really know where we are. We're dancing on the edge of time. We're dancing past, you know, all kinds of crazy things that are going on, overlapping Tahir Square at the same time that you have Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi. You know, the, we really don't know. Well, actually, I thought I was living in very boring times. I, and I realized after Cairo that it's actually a very exciting time to be living. So what I want to call is to become contemporary today, or to be a contemporary dweller, means to proclaim that you are aware of the historical moment and you are aware of the challenges that you have in front of you. So to stay in London is great, but I tell you, to be an exported Londoner is much better. You can become that social activist. You can become that actor network out there in the world and probably execute a lot more change. And probably this is one of the projects that Ricky mentioned, and I will end on this probably today which is the vertical gymnasium. It began as one gym, and now it is being repeated over the city slowly with different mayors, government, pro-government, you know, etc. And what it is is four levels of playing fields. These were some of the early visions of that vertical gym. It began like this, the story. We were walking in Chacao, and I was a soccer player uh, a little while ago, and I went to play with these kids on the street on a six-on-six, six, and they told me after the game that they would like a roof over their soccer field. Well, I was just coming back from New York with Hubert from Columbia University, and we said, what, a roof? Let's make a structure. Let's maximize the amount of sports that we can do in this community. Because if you look around, look at the density of that community. They needed, in fact, if you were to apply the legislation, the laws that the city requires, if you're going to build a new city or a new urbanization, it requires a series of coefficients of open space, green space, schools, etc., that are non-existing. So if they were to incorporate these areas into the mayor's uh, responsibility, he would have to produce these open, these spaces for them. So we said, no, let's build a prototype of a vertical gymnasium. And it went like this. We prefabricated the pieces in a, in, in a metal shop, and we put it and built it on site in six months. And actually, a lot of the workers of the gym were the people living in the area. 
And this is the gym today. It has a polycarbonate, no, just very simple facade, very cheap. And this is the community that is actually benefiting the most from it. The youth now, as Ricky said, are moving out of these lanes and going to sports programs. And actually diabetes has been reduced and actually uh, crime has been reduced, as Ricky said, in 30%. But not only that, but we started to look at the color schemes. So here's where the designer comes in. And we use that orange as the orange of our gym. And to relate it then back to the community. And this is what happens every day in that gym. It is fully programmed. We have 15,000 people using it per month. A place where only six on six. Now this is where the important story comes. I just asked the Acumen Fund to help us see how we could build more gyms and do a research project on this uh, prototype. To where, how we could place it in other cities around the world that are also needing it. Well, they told us, I need a, an econometric study of how your gym impacted the community. I need to know the economics around it so I can justify the social investment. Well, I told her I wasn't very good at that. So I throw it out to you. If anyone knows or anyone's willing to do a research project on this area, we house you in Caracas and we come up with the statistics that are needed for me to be able to sell this to the big foundations that deal with this. But as I was saying, the gym is only three, 4,000 square meters of, of, of usable space in an 800 square meter lot. And it's been successful. People get married there, community meetings, sports. You know, it is the house for everything. It is the maison de peuple. It's the people's house, which is a very old concept that goes way back to Russian constructivists, worker clubs. So here is the second gym as it goes up in Baruta. And this is a, a recent photograph of it. And it has now become part of a plan that our people are calling 180 degrees, is to turn around crime in the city 180 degrees. So I think with that, I'll end. Thank you. one third through the way number of slides. <laughs> when he said he could go on, he could. Uh, Alfredo will come and sit down. And we have a bit of time for a conversation and, um, yeah. and comments. Can you hear us? Yeah. I, I thought that was extraordinary to see uh, the framing of the discussion and the framing of the action and um, the quality of what you've achieved. I mean, I found uh, I mean, amazingly exciting and incredibly positive. I mean, you come out of a talk from you. Most times you hear talks, and I, think, I, I, I feel I engender that myself when I talk about cities. You come out feeling terribly depressed, you know, about the statistics of the world, the slums, and everything else. And uh, you, you're picking up that energy and translating it to people in the room. Questions, comments? I have many myself, but I'm sure there are others from here. Just tell us who you are. And if you're an economist, you've got a job. <laughs> hear me? Yes. Yeah. My name is Antanas Perez. I come from Colombia, from Bogota. And I'm doing a master in management uh, here at LSE. 
So I would like to know, uh, in uh, Latin America, development is the same thing as being as Europe. So like in Bogota, if in Bogota you want to develop, you need a metro. But how can you convince people that there are other ways, and how can you convince politicians, and how can you convince the people that vote for politicians that there are different ways that, than the European way to develop a city? That's funny you say that because uh, as I reflect on Bogota in Colombia, I think they know their story. You have Fajardo, you have Mocus, you have Peñalosa, and you have politicians who have taken on the responsibility of creating a, a different type of city. You have incredibly illuminated people. And I tell you, this is interesting, that you might say about you know, North and South or, or Europe and, and Latin America, and I tell you, a lot of new models of city building are coming out of Latin America. In fact, the Metro Cable is one. It's the first prototype of an urban cable car system, and it's coming from Latin America. Also, you have the transport, the dedicated bus route, you know, which is, came out of Curitiba and implemented much, much further in Bogota. So um, you have in Medellin, you have another Metro Cable. So I actually believe that Colombia is on the forefront of urban development. But is your question really how, how do you get the, the people or the politicians to support it? Is that? But I think the richness uh, and the success of Bogota is that it's not the European way. It's actually created a model that, if anything, we're beginning to import here. But the last mayor was elected saying that he would build a metro, whereas the other guy was saying he shouldn't build a metro because it's too expensive. And he was elected because Bogota wants to I think I know where you're going. I think I know. Okay, let me think about this. You want to answer? Yeah, I can say something to it. No, you want to? Oh, you, you no, want to no, go? No, no, oh. no. When you said, I think I'm going to come back later. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think what you're, what you're leaning towards is that we have this idea that to develop we must look like other cities, right? You know, it's the Manhattanization of the world. Uh, Rem Koolhaas, if you might know of him, he might have come here to speak, he did a great disservice because he threw out an image of Manhattan to the world as the great city, right, the skyscraper. He had the model of the idea of a city that respected a kind of base, a kind of grid, a rationality, a, uh, a kind of a base structure. And then he said, on top of that, do whatever you want, which is what Manhattan is. He made these fantastic drawings of a gridded city that has a base that respects streets and streetscape. And then he said, do a tower with whatever folly you want on top. Well, that became the model of China, of Dubai, of, of Mumbai also, and uh, in the new development models, right, which is the base, the shopping mall, and then the tower, right? But what he didn't tell, or what people didn't read, because no one reads books, right, but it was in there, Delirious New York, the story was that he analyzed the program. What's fantastic about Manhattan is that in one radius of a block, you have absolute diversity. You have social housing, you have rent control housing, you have upper class housing, and I'm talking about east side, upper side Manhattan, right? You have you know, all, all kinds of diversity and mixed social programs. Now that was not transferred, right? So what the real story that you're getting at is how can we go beyond just looking at images? 
right? So the way we do it is we stop producing so many images and we start telling stories, narratives, narratives of change. And that's why I think that if I were to do my next book of architecture, it will be the story behind each one of these works. Um, Dal, that was what you were getting at, but that was a very interesting interpretation. <laughs> we'll, come, we'll come, maybe come back there. Yeah. Just a quick question. Uh, for your Metrocable project, how much inspiration do you got from the Medellin project? Um, was there some um, feedback or? Sure, sure, sure. We started very, very early, long time ago. Um, my partner's Austrian. You can imagine he understands cable cars. You know? <laughs> he grew up with them. But so did I, funny enough. Actually, all the major cities of Caracas, Guayaquil, Bogotá, I believe, uh, uh, Caracas, all had cable cars in the 1950s, and Caracas still had it up and running and functioning. So we had an Austrian company, Doppelmayr, working in Caracas, who was doing the maintenance on that cable car. And we thought we should design a funicular, like Valparaíso in Chile, etc. But the, and the, when we went to Doppelmayr to ask for advice, they said, forget the funicular. That's also too invasive. And the funicular can only go up 30% incline, right? So we began very early in 2001, 2002. And actually, there was a whole buzz in the city about this cable car, because we let it out slowly into the press. But it wasn't us. It was Doppelmayr who was looking for a job, right? And we realized that politically, it was too much of a hotbed. And the mayor, uh, Barreto, uh, that you were referring to, um, Barreto wanted to take that project on for himself. And central government president said, that project goes to the metro. So it took a very long time to develop. And Medellin was also on the trend. And guess what? <laughs> Not with Doppelmayr, but went to the French company, Leitner, the other competitor of cable cars, and they implemented it much faster, much quicker. Now, the real important differentiation between, between Medellin and Caracas is, one, Medellin is on a street. It has a double system. It's posts that go up on a car street. So it's not a completely pedestrian community. Uh, San Agustin is 100% kept pedestrian difference. And two, in, in Medellin, it's a straight line, several straight lines now. They built a couple. And it goes up and um, to the famous libraries on top, etc. In Caracas, it is a complete loop connected on several posts. So, and with these, and like Medellin, has a series of plug-in infrastructures. But I really hope that the Caracas metric, which I'm not in control of, of what will happen there, remains a productive place that is not gentrified, but actually becomes a place in which they can produce things that come right out of the community, right? As people grow up, because there will be a certain amount of tourism. But Medellin has become an absolute beautiful flower market, touristic site, because as you know, Medellin goes up to a park. There is a park on the other side. There was always a public park on the other side. So it really is a touristic route. I hope that in Caracas it remains an urbanization just like any other, and not a touristic site. Can you say something about um, how money is put together for these projects? Because you, know, it's a, you, you say the power of images, and part of your role uh, with Urban Think Tank is to create an image which then sort of catches fire and ca captures the imagination of politicians and others. But there are a number of projects here that 
in many other parts of the world just wouldn't have been funded. Right? Yeah, that's very and, important. Yeah, and how, what role did you play in that? Very good. So, did you pay for any of the stuff? <laughs> yes, uh -huh. well, no. we have a fraction of that cost. Yeah. We well, have a fraction of that cost. You should say a little bit more. So, about when we began as an architectural group, you know, I don't have an eroticism with money. You know, um, so therefore, as an architect, we thought what we wanted was work. If I can have work and I can have a salary from from the income, but reinvest it all in a kind of, let's say non-profit, not no profit, but you know, non-profit that actually reinvests in more research, right? And that's what it began as. We financed all of those early projects. We got grants from the Graham Foundation, from the KSB. We used grant money to funnel it into real projects that our, our sponsors were not even knowing. We wouldn't have gotten even the money from Germany if they knew it was to realize a work of architecture, right? And later they were very proud that their names were on the project, right? So that what Ricky's saying is really a tragedy, how difficult it is to access those pots of money. But I tell you, the problem is not money. There's enough money in the world, as you saw in the banking crisis, when they said the banks were too big to fail, they suddenly appeared with thousands and billions of dollars, right, to bail it out. So money is not the problem. The problem is changing people's frame of outlook. Now, the cable car, it was a $90 million project, okay? The, the system. All of the plug-in infrastructure will take it up to 150. Oh, what a scandal. Twice as more expensive than, than Medellin, right? But did you see the size of those things? All of those stations have social spaces underneath <laughs> that are just waiting to be opened up. That's why it looks a little bulky, but because they don't have the NGOs ready to go. Now, the vertical gymnasium, our first one, cost only $600,000 to build. Now it would cost about, you know, there's been hyperinflation in Caracas, so it would cost about 1 million, 1.2 to build. But it's just a simple now, where, where raw structure. Where does the money for the vertical yeah. gym come So from? vertical gym money came from a diverse public and private sponsorship. So the, the land was actually municipal land, okay? So um, they just put a, a, a value on it. Later, private sponsorship came from a diverse group of organizations, local community organizations in the area. But the mayor paid for the, for the majority of that project. The Caracas, the Chacao mayor had a vision, we convinced him, he was actually trained at Harvard, so he had that capacity to think, think through that project. But I tell you, it wasn't easy, and there's a sad part to it. He later politicized it and tried to cap, uh, capture that project for himself. Um, which is okay um, that he uses that project in political capital, but not to say that he had the exclusive rights on the vertical gymnasium. Other questions? Here and up there. Hello, I'm Travis. Um, I'm an urban design student at the Bartlett. Put it a bit closer. Yeah, um, I'm an urban design student at the Bartlett, and I found your work really inspiring. I thought it was. Uh, very uh, important, um, and I really appreciate this uh, toolkit that you've developed, the language to be able to uh, go to other places, other cities, and implement these projects. Um, but I do wonder about the political realities of it. Do you have any ideas for how to kind of approach um, a, a new place or some, some of these other cities um, and somehow deal with the politics that are there in order to, to make things happen. Like, do you have any 
Um, I mean, you, you are from Caracas, you know that city. Do you think that there, there's a way to reproduce that experience somewhere else? Okay, so you, you obviously, it's, it's ambitious to think that you can do this globally. And we have no, as I said at the beginning, we only probably are good at producing prototypes, right? So we do this kind of local, but then we bring it back to our office, we develop it, and then we send it back, but we need local partners. So yes, we have a certain uh, methodology of going on the ground, right? Of putting the feet on the ground. Some people say in the ditch, right? We're working in the ditch. But the most important thing is to find a invested interest group who wants it, who needs something, and not what we have. We're actually interested to know what new prototypes can come out of that. So as I said, the Koli village, we're trying to figure out how can we keep that Koli village there and actually let development happen. Because I'm not against market. I just want a city that has multiple layers. Like, I guess, a better designed city than Caracas, but with the same spirit of the multiplicity. How do you put traffic lights in Mumbai? How do you stop cows at lights, right? You know, I'm really interested in this notion of the kinetic city, of, of Raul Mehotra's kinetic city idea, of where squares change their, their, their projects during the day, you know, at nighttime in the morning, cows graze there, shops open up, etc. Then it becomes a street party at night, etc. I'm interested in this multiplicity of space, right? So I'm not so interested in, in actually a formalization of my products. So I don't really want to control what they look like. But we find vested interest groups, we hand over prototypes, and they must take it on. We are limited, and that's where I say I realize the vulnerability of playing the global architect. Hi, Andrea Colantonio from LSE Cities. Um, I was going to ask you a question about money and how do you fund your project, but uh, Ricky has already asked that. So my question is about approvals and um, permissions to, to build in these places because they're not uh, formally regulated. Uh, they're not even on municipal maps, you know, as you said, they're green areas. Um, who do you ask permission to, to build that? And also, do you follow a formal planning process? Or because it, it is an informal settlement, you sort of um, apply different standards? That's actually an excellent question because I left it out. You know what? When two-thirds of the city of Caracas are built informally, Right? out of supposedly planning regulation. And there's something very peculiar about it. It's all uniform. Did you see that? It almost has all four or five floors. Right? It has a system, a network system of, of dimensions, of, of concrete dimensions. Actually, there's more uniformity in the unplanned city, let's say, than in the planned city where you see this kind of chaotic zoning. So actually, I believe in the liberation of zoning. So when you ask me specifically, was the cable car zoned? No. In did, what? No. Did you get planning permission for the for any of those things? No. No. Right. But no planning permission. But how did it happen? Once the mayors and the politicians saw the possibility, they changed the zoning. Yeah, Andrea is Italian. He understands that. <laughs> Two more questions, I think. Three. Also, go on for another five minutes if that's okay. Hi. So, um, sorry, I just wanted to to react to what you said about China. I've lived in China for five years in several large cities and um, I was last Saturday walking around in London 
I, I was really surprised how quiet it was, because in China it's never quiet. And um, I've lived in areas of large cities. There are not many of them, but there are still old town areas that are lovely, very quaint. And people are being displaced. They're, they're being relocated in, in suburbs, as you've shown. But they bring their lifestyle with them. And in China, if you're down even a 30-story or 40-story block, there's always some kind of old people, walking dogs or children. People are talking to their neighbors on a Saturday morning or in the evening at 7. Everyone's outside talking to their neighbors. And it feels like people have a house in their head that they're taking with them wherever they go. A question? Whether they're, um, yeah, sorry. Um, <clears throat> how much do you think that your understanding of culture and of what people want and how they live affects your ability to be creative in, in designing buildings? Okay, so that's why we're looking at cities around the globe, right? And the cities I'm interested in are precisely those highly dense uh, uh, that, uh, social cities that have incredible human interaction, right? And people do carry that culture with them. In fact, that's why in Utrecht, they don't fit in the apartments. That's why in Robin Hood Gardens, they have multiple people living in those apartments that actually is appalling, right? So they need seven room apartments because the families grow and the cousins come. But actually, uh, they, uh, uh, let's say the migrants have another mentality, as you're saying, another culture. But the interesting thing about the Smithsons, let's say, to give you an example of these houses in the air, was they made a very interesting apartment where the kitchen was on the ground floor as you enter, and then you move up to the living room and the bedrooms. Well, it turned out that that doesn't sound so good because you're going up and down from the kitchen to the living room, but it turned out wonderfully for the immigrant families because the women are in the kitchen and they should not be mixed with the men. So actually, it works very well with the culture. So we're studying cities like Fez, which is a ninth century social city, university city, where production and living go on hand in hand. In fact, the madrasas had uh, hotels for carpenters migrating to the city to teach them crafts. And the crafts then got sold in the front of their homes. So I am interested in uh, the cultural project of building cities. So if we, you were to build anywhere else, you would have to understand deeply that culture. I think one of the important things which come out of this exchange is um, the role of the built environment in uh, accepting and accommodating difference over time. And I think the, the notion that you don't design something which is fit for purpose, actually quite the opposite. You don't know what the purpose is going to be. It's something that the more one looks at these sort of informal settlements, the more one begins to understand that. I mean, actually, even if you think of um, the Georgian terrace in, in London, it's a built form which has more or less remained the same for 150, nearly 200 years in some cases. But the building, the buildings have remained the same, but in some, they were created as the houses for the emerging middle classes of that time. In some cases, even in Notting Hill, they then became um, nearly squatter settlements, student housing in the 20s and 30s. Um, now you have Porsches and BMWs parked in, in three rows because of uh, they're used as apartment blocks for sort of bankers, and some of them being reconverted back into housing for Russians. You know, and, but society has changed, the houses remain the same, roughly. So. And I think your, your point in response to the other question about uniformity, but enormous dynamism within that, which allows for that, 
complexity is, is something that Raul Mirota and, and, and others talk about. Now, I'm afraid we are going to have to end because of timing, but you can attack him in a moment privately. Uh, many of the issues that um, have been talked about by Alfredo are things that um, we are very interested at, the, at LSE cities. We've um, uh, tried to research them in uh, many of the countries and cities that uh, Alfredo has uh, talked about, including Sao Paulo, Mumbai, and Istanbul. And I just want to make a plug here, uh, which is on the 6th of June, so not that far away, when some of you have finished your exams. Uh, we're actually launching uh, our new book, which uh, deals with many of these um, uh, themes and focuses on these three cities called Living in the Endless City. It's the second iteration of a book which came out two years ago called The Endless City. Uh, and to launch that, that, we're holding an event in the new academic building with uh, Juan Clos, who's now the head of UN Habitat, uh, who used to be the mayor of Barcelona, Richard Sennett, Saskia Sassen, and uh, three of the authors of the uh, essays in this book in Mumbai, in uh, Sao Paulo, and in uh, Istanbul. So I hope some of you come to that. But certainly when we go through that conversation, Alfredo, uh, many of the ideas and uh, I hope some of the energy that you brought to us will be uh, remembered. But uh, I go away uplifted from your talk and feel very, very positive as ever whenever I meet him. So join me in thanking Alfredo Brindley. Thank you. I just want to say one more thing. You know, some of you, maybe you don't know it, but Latin America had a great boom generation of writers. Vargasiosa, Cortázar, Borges, but the best one and the most contemporary of them for me now over time is Cortázar, and he wrote a couple of books, but he wrote one short story books of called Cronopios y de Famas, and Famas he called those ego characters that walked around the city who had a big ego and needed to see themselves in heaven. But he had another group of characters called Cronopios. Mm -hmm. Cronopios were, were kind of a Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club band, which was him and his friends. And I tell you, I just want to say that there are a group of very interesting people who kind of understand the vulnerability of architecture and urbanism and are looking for solutions. And Ricky is probably the best of them.